Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is uh, author David Quammen. He's recently come out with a book called The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. Uh, the book was fe- featured on NPR, uh, the Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, and it's ranked pretty highly. I believe it's uh, 275 in, in terms of all new books out there. So uh, I bought it, and I've been listening to it. I'm a few chapters in, but uh, I wanted to talk to you about it, David. So how are you doing? Very good, Rich. Nice to nice to be on yeah. the podcast, which I appreciate it. No problem. So, what what spurred you to write this book, and what's the uh, the book about for people that don't know yet? Well, uh, the book is about the idea of the tree of life as the picture of evolutionary history on Earth. Uh, that goes back to Charles Darwin, uh, who said that mm. you know um, uh, the, the the idea of the tree of life had been around. It was sort of a religious image, but Darwin turned it into an evolutionary image with the uh, the trunk of the tree representing the single source for all life and then the the big limbs branching away and then the smaller branches and finally twigs representing how biological diversity has come to be on this planet. Um, Mm. Always branching, always diverging to the point where at the top of the tree you've got uh, the tiny twigs and the leaves, the canopy representing the diversity of life on Earth. But the reason I wrote the book is because that image, that Darwinian image of the tree of life, has been radically challenged in the last 40 years by discoveries from genome sequencing uh, that are still completely in tune with uh, the general uh, thrust of evolutionary theory, but have modified uh, the way we understand it to a a dramatic degree. Um, And that's why my Hmm. book is entitled The Tangled Tree. It's essentially a story of the... uh, of the people who, who made that uh, revolutionary change in thinking about the history of life on Earth and, and the fact that it is not perfectly represented by, um, by the tree of life. So what, um, what are some of the most surprising insights that have come now that um, we're able to look at the, uh, the genetics of you know, various creatures on Earth? Yeah. Well, the biggest one, and this is the one that started me on the subject when I read about it in 2013, the biggest one is a phenomenon called horizontal gene transfer. They abbreviate it HGT, but horizontal gene transfer, meaning that um, by, com- by doing genome sequencing of lots of different creatures, scientists have discovered that genes have been moving sideways and not just um, vertically from parents to offspring. Genes have been moving sideways across species boundaries, across kingdom boundaries from one kind of life into completely different forms of life, horizontally mm. instead of vertically. So what that means in terms of the tree is that it's not all a matter of diverging branches. There are branches that converge. There are channels that move from one limb sideways into another limb carrying genetic material. And when I read about that in 2013, I had already written about three books on evolutionary biology, but I'd never heard of this. And I said, what, wait, what? Huh. Horizontal? Genes moving sideways across species boundaries, that's supposed to be impossible. I read further into it and discovered, no, it is indeed possible. Um, There are a couple of mechanisms that I can describe that make it possible, but it's well documented by um, this field of 
of gene sequencing now. And so uh, I started reading about the people who had made the discovery, some very interesting people, some fascinating characters, at the center right. of which is this fellow, Carl Woes, who is my central character in the book. Well, so, you know, to maybe make a blunt point today, um, could a modern human, you know, walking around in the U.S., let's say, um, somehow uh, receive genetic information from um, a virus out there or from, um, you know, a, a, an ancient bacteria that's supposedly yeah. way down at the bottom of the tree? Could they integrate uh, well, and receive genes from one of those creatures and thereby change their own biology? Yes. Well, the answer is yes. Um, there are constraints against it. It doesn't happen very often. Um, it's a rare phenomenon, but we know from the sequencing of the human genome that it has happened. We now know that uh, there are bacteria that have been swallowed by uh, cellular ancestors of humans of the animal lineage and, and that those bacteria have contributed genes to our genomes. But even more recently, more dramatically, we now know that 8% of the human genome is viral DNA that has gotten into the mammal lineage by infection through uh, retroviruses. Retroviruses have infected animals, and they have transferred their DNA into the, the deepest core of the human genome, what has become the human genome. So that 8% of the human genome is now viral DNA. Um, wow. You know, you hear about, you hear about retroviruses, and they, retro meaning backwards, and that's because they have a genome that's RNA. It's a single-stranded molecule. They can turn that into DNA and insert themselves into the genomes of cells. For instance, HIV inserts itself into the genome of immune cells and, and gets itself replicated, and that's what causes AIDS. But if an, a retrovirus inserts itself into a reproductive cell, an egg cell or a sperm cell, an ovary cell or a testes cell, it can enter the genome. It can become heritable, and that's what we're talking about here. 8% of our genome is captured retrovirus DNA that has come in sideways over the course of the last maybe 100 million years, a long time, by infection. Oh. And some of that viral DNA uh, is now functioning as important genes within the human genome. I, I can describe cases of that if you want. That's amazing. So this is like a really crazy question. How much of evolution is driven by, um, you know, viral influence on the genome versus, I don't know, other methods like, you know, what's called natural selection or other pressures or random right. mutations well, or, you know. Yep, yep. That's a good question. And, and you hit on the, the basic concept, random mutation, random mistakes when DNA copies itself from one cell to the next. Uh, has been understood as the source of the variation, the differences between individuals that natural selection, Darwin's mechanism, works on. But mm. we now know that there's another source of variation, big lumps of variation, that can come in by horizontal gene transfer. It's not just random mutation. So the question you asked is a really huge question right now. How much has this phenomenon influenced big transitions in evolutionary history? And the, the, the current answer is, well, nobody knows, but we want to find out. And there's a lot of research being done on this. One case that uh, stands out, um, I described near the end of the book, book, is a case of, it's one of those stretches of viral DNA, and it functions as a gene. We acquired it somewhere in animal history by infection with a retrovirus, but that 
retrovirus gene now functions to form a membrane between the placenta and the fetus in all mammals, including humans. And without that membrane between the placenta and the fetus, pre successful pregnancy in mammals is not possible. That membrane, formerly um, caused by, built by a, a gene that was formerly a viral gene that built a, a membrane around the viral particle, now it builds a membrane in mammalian females between the placenta and the fetus that allows the, the placenta to transfer nutrients into the fetus, the fetus to transfer waste products out, and allows pregnancy to happen. That transition, we don't know for sure, but it may be that the evolution of mammals was dependent on a viral infection 100 million or more years ago and not do, well, probably due to a combination of things, but a viral infection as well as um, incremental mutations. That's amazing. You know, I, I could see why this would open up a whole bunch of new lines of thought. Like one thing that occurred to me is, okay, what if we were to look at um, ancestral human DNA over, you know, hundreds of thousands or possible millions of years and look for the appearance of, you know, certain viral DNA within our genome mm -hmm. and see how fast it's happening and how much it's been happening. That's true. That would be, I mean, if we had, if we had DNA from uh, human ancestors going back a million years, we'd want to sequence it uh, and make those comparisons. Um, the, the deepest we can go is, I think it's 40 or 50,000 years. There's a team led by um, a scientist named Svante Pabo, who has sequenced Neanderthal DNA from mm. scraps and bits of bone that have been found in caves in Europe and in Asia. Uh, in, in Asia, it's actually another group, not in Neanderthal, it's called Denisovan. But he has managed to reconstruct some of that DNA and compared the Neanderthal genome with the modern human genome and found, among other things, that once, once we diverged from the Neanderthal lineage, uh, our lineages came back together, speaking of a tangled tree, came back together and interbred at certain points during the time when both Neanderthals and, and uh, Homo sapiens sapiens, our group, um, were living side by side in Europe, you know, uh, 30,000, 40,000 years ago. But that's as far as we've been able to go into the past because uh, we just don't have DNA that's, that's much older than that. Well, I can see, I mean, most people, I don't think, appreciate how much, um, you know, not only do we have viral DNA or, you know, other DNA, but how much we interact and depend on microbes. Like if you looked at the microbiome, you know, we've got right. countless bacteria in our guts and our mouths and our anuses. I mean, everything. And we, mm -hmm. you know, there's, they, they manufacture serotonin and some say they actually are a second brain. I mean, it's, it makes sense that this uh, this is definitely it could be a major contributor to its evolution. HGT. Right, right. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, the, the microbiome. We have all these all these microbes, mostly bacteria, living in our in our gut, in our intestines, our, our eyebrows, and other parts of the body. And um, uh, they uh, are being appreciated more and more as an ecosystem, not just infection, but an ecosystem of creatures non-human creatures that um, that live not within our cells most of them but within our within our bodies um, within compartments in our bodies and one of the things i described in, in the tangled tree is work by a scientist at mit named eric alm alm and his group and they have discovered 
looking at the, you know, speaking of the microbiome, they have discovered there's horizontal gene transfer that occurs within the microbiome. So that even within human stomachs and intestines, there are bacteria of different species, different groups, even different families of bacteria that are passing genes sideways from one to the other. Why would that be significant? Well, one reason is because that's the way antibiotic resistance in bacteria has has spread so quickly around the world, not by incremental mm-hmm. mutation, but by horizontal gene transfer. Once resistance has arisen in one kind of bacteria, it can transfer that resistance gene to a completely different kind of bacterium in an instant. So we've got that going on in our guts. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's all very tangled, as, uh, as, um, as a person can see. Um, we are so ecosystems, uh, and we are mosaics. Mm, that's true. Yeah. So how does, uh, what's an example or two of how horizontal gene transfer works? Uh, well, uh, for instance, um, I mentioned viral infection. Um, there are essentially there are three mechanisms that scientists talk about, and they've got fancy names, conjugation, transformation, transduction. Transduction is when a virus carries a piece of DNA from one kind of creature that it has infected into another kind of creature, sort of a drag and drop thing. A virus can infect the cell of one creature, can pick up DNA, a bit of DNA from that cell, incorporate it into its own viral genome. The virus replicates itself, copies that part of the, uh, the genome along with the rest. And then if descendants of that viral particle infect another creature, it can drop that DNA in the genome of another creature. That's what they call transduction, you know, pulling across. Um, another um, form is, is transformation. What that simply means is naked DNA that's, that's floating in a liquid uh, environment because cells have been, uh, have been ruptured, have exploded, have been destroyed, and their DNA is floating around. That naked DNA can be taken up by other microbes that are living in that liquid environment. Um, this is horizontal gene transfer at the microbial level which might sound sort of obscure, but when you look at how, uh, how uh, consequential it is with uh, antibiotic resistance, you realize that all of these things are, are very consequential. Yeah, it's just odd. You know, I, I was just thinking, how would a bacteria, for instance, know that, you know, DNA floating around in the ambient liquid, or how would it know that, you know, a, a certain gene that a virus has or other bacteria has would be useful to it? Like, how could DNA or RNA, it's almost like it's, it, it, it itself is alive. It has a will and it's searching and it has, it's able to discern what will help it and what won't. It's just very odd. Right. It is very odd. And we don't want to, uh, we don't want to anthropomorphize these things. We don't want to personify them. But um, if you remember the, the British scientist Richard Dawkins in a book that he published back in 1976, The Selfish Gene, does that ring a bell? Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard the book, yeah. Launched, yeah, yeah. So he proposed the idea that, and, and it has been, um, it has been much embraced in the scientific community, that DNA itself, that genes themselves, um, they don't think about this, they don't have intentions, but they have um, an inbuilt capacity to copy themselves, and therefore they um, they subscribe to the to the classic Darwinian logic of the survival of the fittest. Those creatures that are capable of copying themselves, surviving and copying themselves the most abundantly are are the most fit, the ones that continue to exist, the ones that become abundant, the ones that dominate. 
So the, the idea of selfish DNA is just that, that DNA has not conscious intention, but it has the ability to copy itself. It competes with, for resources. One stretch of DNA would compete for resources within a liquid environment against other stretches of DNA. And those that copy themselves the, um, the most abundantly, the most quickly, and the most continuously are the ones that continue to exist. Um, and so that's one of the explanations for this phenomenon of horizontal gene transfer. These are stretches of selfish DNA that, um, mm. that compete for the chance to copy themselves and insert themselves into other organisms within which they will be copied by the organism when it reproduces. Huh. So uh, it sounds like horizontal gene transfer occurs in response to environmental pressures. Is that what, ha is that what makes it occur? You said it happens very rarely. Have we identified well, under what conditions and what circumstances it happens and why? Transfer into the, in the complex, large creatures like, uh, you know, like animals, mammals, humans in particular, that happens rarely because there are constraints against it. We have complex cells that have their DNA um, protected in cell nuclei. Um, there, those are constraints, not, not un, un, uh, unsurpassable constraints, but constraints against DNA coming in sideways. But uh, when you look at bacteria, those are simple cells with uh, liquid interiors, not a lot of complexity. And um, horizontal gene transfer among bacteria uh, happens quite frequently. It's going on presumably all the time. Um, and, uh, and so those creatures that happen to receive uh, DNA uh, that is useful to them will survive. For instance, um, MRSA. Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Uh, it's mm. a superbug, this resistant bug. A lot of people have heard about it. MRSA, um, it kills probably thousands of people a year around the U.S. and more around the world. Um, these killer bugs, these forms of bacteria that are antibiotic-resistant, resistant, um, the whole group of them kills more than 11,000 people in the U.S. each year. Why? Because we can't kill them with our antibiotics. Um, we can throw five different kinds of antibiotics at, at this one particular bug, MRSA, and not kill it. Why is that? Because it has happened to acquire resistance genes by horizontal gene transfer from other bacteria. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't want people to think that this or, is, you know, you know this, this, this story, horizontal gene this story, transfer regularly. Yeah, yeah, or that, or that this book is, uh, is, is sort of impenetrably complex. This is this is a, um, a, as much a book about the people who made these discoveries as about the discoveries themselves. Um, fascinating scientists like my central character, Carl Woese, this, this little microbiologist in Urbana, Illinois, who, who made a discovery in 1977 that got him on the front page of the New York Times and who essentially triggered this revolution in genome sequencing and in the discovery of horizontal gene transfer and the tangles of the tree of life. So I'm writing about Carl Woese and a number of other characters who, um, whose, whose lives are good stories um, in the course of mm. making the discoveries that, that boggle our minds. So what's, how has your appreciation changed since uh, researching for the book and writing the book? Like, what are some things that really stick out to you, you know, whether they're unanswered questions or new realizations, but what's, well, how has your it, thinking uh, evolved? It, uh, it gives me a, uh, among other things, a, a, um, a greater sense of humility for me as a, supposedly as an individual human, for every other individual human, uh, it makes me aware 
that not only are we are we part of nature in the sense that we're animals, and this is this is one of Charles Darwin's um, great great lessons, and probably the, the deepest and darkest of his lessons when he um, helped us to understand that humans are animals, and we've evolved from common ancestry with other animals. So that was sort of a, a helpful and humbling insight from Darwin. But now we come to understand through this work that not only are we part of the natural world in that we're descended through the animal line, but we're also uh, mosaics that contain viral DNA that could come to us sideways. We contain bacterial DNA. We're, we're mosaics of other kinds of creatures, including some very simple creatures. Um, we've got the, the simple creatures of the microbiome living in our bellies, but we've also got the DNA from other simple creatures living in our very genomes. Uh, and uh, it, it, it dizzied me when I first started reading about this back in 2013. Still kind of dizzies me to think about it, but it makes, as I said, it, it humbles me as a reminder that, yeah, I like to think of, you know, David Quammen as an individual human being, Charles Darwin as an individual human being, Richard Jacobs as an individual human being, but that individuality um, encompasses um, the DNA of other creatures, the history of other lineages that have come together in us. Um, it still makes my head spin. Hmm. So is the, instead of a tree of life or even a tangle tree, I mean, have you figured out a better representation? Is it like a spider web? That keeps expanding concentrically in all directions. Spider web is not bad. Some people say we shouldn't talk about the tree of life. We should talk about the web of life or the net of life. Um, I have called it a tangled tree because, to a great degree, there still is a, a tree-shaped primary signal in the history of life. Uh, most of evolution is described well by the trunk representing uh, single origin for all life the major limbs representing the first big um, divergences in life, the branches and the lesser branches. That still tells you most of what you want to know about the history of life. But then there are these other things. There are these sideways channels. There are these branches that go horizontally from one limb into another, uh, these tangled branches. So, um, so a spider web, yeah, sort of. And I, I've occasionally talked about that character I mentioned, Carl Rose, as the, the spider uh, in the middle of this web of discoveries that I write about in the book. But I call it the tangled tree because it really isn't shaped like anything we know of in the physical world. It's shaped like a piece of, oh, and I say this in the book, it's shaped like a piece of, of topiary. It's shaped like, um, I talk about a, a man in, in Barris, Wisconsin in 1907, a man named John Krubstack who made chairs and benches out of box elder trees that he grafted together into amazing shapes. Um, and the reason he's in the book is because this is essentially um, an impossible object, a tree that's not a tree because some of its limbs have been graft, uh, grafted around to form hoops and conduits and channels side to side, uh, almost as though you made a uh, you made a tr you made a chair out of box elder trees. Hmm. So uh, again, you said horizontal gene transfer occurs rarely in complex creatures like humans, but under what conditions have we observed it to happen? Or we just see, oh, there's viral DNA there. We don't know how it got there or when or what caused it. Do we have any insight yeah. into when it happens in people, for instance? 
Well, the, it can be dated. I, I talked about the scientists who worked on those uh, captured retroviruses in our DNA. Uh, there's a fellow in Paris, a wonderful scientist named Thierry Heidemann, works at an institute on the south side of Paris, um, and he has done a lot of work on that um, uh, that viral gene that uh, builds the membrane between the placenta and the fetus. Um, they can look at those genes and by um, by comparing them with other versions in other kinds of mammals, they can get a sense of when those viruses invaded the human genome. They can say that this one, this captured viral gene might be maybe 40 million years old. And this one in another kind of um, mammal uh, that hasn't changed so much over time might be only 20 million years old. So. By measuring the amount of change in these, these sort of similar captured genes, they can make rough estimates of how long they've been in the, in the mammal lineage or the human lineage. But in terms of seeing it happen, no, we can't, we can't see it happening. At least we haven't seen it happening so far. All we can find, and this is the subject of the whole book, what we, all we can find is what we know from sequencing genomes and comparing them one to the other, using them as a sort of molecular fossil record and deducing what has happened over the long stretches of time. Well, we've, we've One, observed it in the lab in bacteria, right? Uh, we have observed horizontal gene transfer in the lab in bacteria. That's right, yeah. Uh, I write about a couple of uh, interesting cases in the early mid 20th century where that was done. There was a fellow named Fred Griffith in the 1920s who was working on the, the bacteria that caused pneumonia. And he was looking at different strains, and he was saying, well, here's one strain that's completely harmless. This was a kind of bacteria called pneumococcus. And here's a harmless version, and here's a virulent version that causes terrible pneumonia in people. And then he noticed that he, if he exploded, uh, he ruptured the virulent kind and let their DNA continue to float in the liquid environment, that DNA would get into the non-virulent kind and turn that into virulent bacteria that, again, was capable of causing pneumonia. So that was probably the first case of horizontal gene transfer observed in the laboratory. Have, um, have we looked at uh, human DNA, let's say, just over the last 10,000 years and seen if there's an occurrence of a, of a new viral uh, DNA component being added? No. As far as I know, that has never been done. Um, it's not so easy to get human DNA from 10,000 years ago. I mean, we have some of these samples that I talked about that Svante Pabo has worked on from Neanderthal uh, remains. But again, finding those things, finding DNA, a scrap of DNA on an ancient bone in a cave that hasn't been turned completely to stone, uh, it doesn't happen very often. Those are precious bits of, of, of data that uh, have turned up occasionally, but not often enough to give us a full picture of how the human genome may have differed 10,000 years ago. Well, from seeing how bacteria will, you know, HGT will occur in bacteria, do we have any insights into how it might happen in more complex creatures? Um, you know, uh, that's a good question, and I'm not sure. Uh, even after five years of research, I can answer that question. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we have seen, um, as, as I say, inferentially, we have seen how viral DNA has gotten into the human genome. We know that there are organelles, uh, there are little little internal organs in our cells called mitochondria, 
These are the energy packaging organs in all human cells, all animal cells. They're in plant cells as well. And um, we know from genome sequencing now that those little organs, mitochondria, are captured bacteria. They have their own DNA, and their genomes rep uh, are similar to bacterial genomes rather than similar to, to our own genomes. That's another part of the whole story, the, uh, the assembly of complex cells um, with cell nuclei and with these internal organs like such as mitochondria. The story of how those complex cells got put together is, is a story that I tell in the middle of the book. And uh, one discovery that was sort of pioneered by a great uh, microbiologist named Lynn Margulis uh, in the later half of the 20th century was that um, these organs within our complex cells are captured bacteria. They're the, the descendants of captured bacteria, these mitochondria. Mm. Uh, she first recognized that from from doing microscope and electron microscope work and, and just seeing that they resembled bacteria. And then other scientists came along and sequenced the DNA in these internal organs, these mitochondria, and said, oh my God, that's, that's bacterial DNA. That's the genome of a particular kind of bacteria known as uh, alpha proteobacteria. Um, that's why you hear talk about mitochondrial DNA and mitochondrial Eve and um, this DNA that's passed down only on the on the mother's side. Um, mm -hmm. That's because these mitochondria have completely different DNA from the DNA in our cell nuclei. And why is it different? Because it, it comes from captured bacteria. So that's a different kind of um, horizontal gene transfer. Again, very ancient, but that continues to be not uh, not only significant but completely essential to the functioning of our cells. I wonder if. Uh... I don't know. I, I guess it's crazy. I don't know if horizontal gene transfer occurs within, uh, you know, the bacteria in our body to the cells of the body. You know, you, you just wonder where it occurs and, and again, what, how it occurs and when and why. It's a really big yeah. un unanswered yeah. question, you know. Right, right. And transfer from bacteria to bacterium um, is is accomplished much more readily. Happens much more often. There's a there's a process that uh, uh, they call conjugation. Um, and it's a little bit like bacterial mating. There's a little tube that comes out from one bacterial particle and goes to another, and then um, DNA can be squirted sideways through that tube. It's not really mating. It's not really bacterial sex because it, it doesn't lead to reproduction. It doesn't produce progeny. It just produces the transfer of DNA from one to the other. But that's a pretty common process, and that's probably happening in our bellies with some frequency within the, the, the the uh, bacteria of our microbiome in our bellies and elsewhere, that kind of transfer. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just opening up a lot of possibilities of thought. So where, where? Okay, now again that you've researched and written this book, what's your next step? Where is it? Where is this going to take you? <laughs> well, um, I've got another project. I, I do a lot of work for National Geographic magazine. Uh, I spend much of my time walking through jungles with uh, with biologists and writing about wild places conservation of wildlife and conservation of biological diversity. And so while I'm uh, while I'm talking to people about this book that involves walking through jungles of DNA and jungles of genomes and walking through laboratories with scientists, uh, I'm also now busy with uh, a package of five articles for National Geographic magazine on, on the last wild places of planet Earth and 
for those I'm, mm. I'm walking through real jungles in places like Mozambique and uh, West Africa. Oh wow! Are you um, are you now more excited maybe to work in the area of HGT and find out more about it, or you know, was this just a well, project you did and now you're moving on? Um, no, I I certainly am going to pay attention to this. I'm I'm fascinated to see what's next. Uh, what the next discoveries are from genome sequencing and from this um, fleshing out, this, this uh, uh, adding detail to the very tangled tree of life. So I'll stay with it, and I'll probably come back to it, I hope, with maybe with follow-up magazine stories, things like that. Uh, but uh, but in, uh, to the, for the most part, I move from one big ambitious project to another, generally writing about the life sciences, generally writing about biology, um, but uh, a different topic each time. I feel like I'm, each time I do a book, it takes me about five years, I feel like I've gotten a new PhD in a subject. In this case, it's genome sequencing, horizontal gene transfer, in this field called molecular phylogenetics. The book I did before this was all about emerging viruses and viruses that leap from animals into humans, what they call zoonotic mm. viruses, like Ebola and, uh, and HIV and the influenza. So I spent, I spent five years uh, focused on that, learning everything I could about Ebola and these other scary viral infections. And now I, oh, wow. I keep up with that, but uh, I keep up with that, but um, I got I got distracted into this new project, the, the Tree of Life. So um, keeps me keeps oh. me busy learning, which is which is good. Yeah, I guess well, you know, just one or two last questions. So you wrote a lot about viruses again that jumped from animal to people and you know from yeah. creature to creature. How does that tie in with what you've learned in this recent book? Well, it seems a little bit parallel. You know, viruses leaping from one um, one form of creature to another. You know, viruses leaping out of um, out of rodents or bats or chimpanzees and getting into humans and causing new diseases, emerging diseases. But it is distinct from that in that that never ever uh, involved the invasion of our genome. Uh, that's what was so new to me with this subject. I had learned a fair bit of, about viruses, about the different groups of viruses, how they replicate the ecology and evolutionary biology of, of things like Ebola, of HIV. And I did a long section, a 100-page chapter, which eventually was published as a, uh, as a freestanding book, The Chimp and the River, about the ecological origins of the AIDS pandemic, how this virus um, came originally out of monkeys and combined itself in new ways and got into chimpanzees and then passed from chimpanzees into humans and um, and then became a global pandemic, killing 33, 35 million people so far. Um, mm. So that was dizzying to me. That was a steep learning curve. But again, it never involved changes in the human genome. It was life or death issues with HIV, with Ebola, with these other scary viruses, but never involved the idea that the sacrosanct um, genome inside ourselves could have been altered by these leaping viruses. And, uh, and now I come to find out and come to explain to people in this new book how that, too, is, uh, is something that's going on, has been going on, and affects not only uh, human health, but human sense of identity. Hmm, crazy. So for uh, you know for listeners, what are you know let's let's point them to some resources. So the Tangle Tree is available on an Amazon and Audible and Kindle, right? Yep, yep, should be available and you're at your local bookstore. I hope. Uh, at the moment we speak, it's uh, I've been told it's number twelve on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, nice. At least for the moment, and uh, and it's not just a book for science nerds. It's a book.
book for anybody who's interested in um, in the mysteries of, of science as, as human researchers unravel them, people with interesting lives, people with ambition, competition, cooperation, uh, some crazy human characters uh, um, solving these deep mysteries of science. So I hope there's I hope there's a lot of page turning narrative, occasionally even a joke that'll uh, keep people interested in this book. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Well, David, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, it's been really interesting. Thank you for coming. Yeah, Rich. Thank you for your interest. I really enjoyed talking with you. Good to be on the podcast. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.